0: So we are in Luke. Pastor Rick did a great job last week talking about the transfiguration. And that really, I think, is a huge part of why the book of Luke here shifts in chapter 9. So if you're here last week, I mean, Jesus takes some of the core disciples up on the mountain and then transfigures, like literally, God's glory begins to shine through him. I always try to wrap my head around imagine what that would have been like to see that. My parents used to watch an old show, Touch by an Angel you seen that old show, it ends, I didn't want to watch it, I was all tough, like man, I watch wrestling, put on the Ultimate Warrior or something, you know? But my parents wanted to watch Touch by an Angel and every episode ended with like, you know, I need to tell you, I'm an angel and they'd start like glowing. <laughs> like is that what it was like? And that's probably a quite pathetic, you know, compared to what it would have been like to be there when Jesus just starts like radiating God's glory. And I think that's why it shifts. Because up until this point, Luke is trying to answer the question, who is this Jesus? I mean, that is, up to this point, the fullest revelation of who Jesus is. Man, is he the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah? You find out, yes, he's the Messiah. And as God's glory shines, you see he's the son of God. He's more than just any man. And from there, now that you understand who he is, he turns to what he came to do. Listen for that shift as we read. He now focuses all his attention. Now you're starting to grasp who I am. Now understand what I came to do. I came to the cross. I'm not just here to give you a good example. I'm here to pay the penalty for your sin. All of us have racked up a death sentence. That's what we deserve for our sin, and Jesus is going to go pay for that. So as I read, I want to see if you can kind of feel some of that shift. So I'm going to read. Go ahead and follow along. But wow, they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, God's word is living and active. Like, you really should read it. Even if you don't believe that, it's entertaining at the least. I mean, dive into these stories together. Think about what just happened. So this is Jesus, for the second time, predicting his death, telling his best friends about them. Look at their reaction. I mean, this would be the equivalent. Imagine you go telling your best friends, hey, guys, I need to tell you, I just got back from the doctor, and it's bad. I got stage four, and I'm going to die. And then their response is, Hey, weird. Like, that's the equivalent of what happens here. Jesus tells them, hey, no," and he gets their attention, like, let these words sink in. Like, hey, dum-dums, listen up. This is important, and you're not going to get it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm about to die. That's why I'm here. And they go, oh, bummer, weird, and go on. It even gets worse than that. Can you imagine that reaction from your friends? It gets even worse. Listen as the next passage goes on. And then an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Cool. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, who is least among you all, is the one who is great. I mean, again, dive into this story. you imagine telling your friends that? Hey, guys, I need to tell you I'm about to die. I only have months to live. And their re- reaction is, oh, wow, well, that's a downer. Hey, guys, you hear? I'm about to start a vlog, right? How cool is that? They go on to have an argument about which one of them is the greatest. Now, I want to talk about that. That's my point this morning. I want to redefine greatness for you. But before we begin to unpack that, I want to marvel at Jesus together. Jesus was a man just like us, although, you know, son of God as well. What would you be thinking in that moment? If you go tell your friends you have months to live and then they turn around and just start bragging about which one of them is the greatest, I'd flip out. I'd be like Rod Tidwell to Jerry Maguire, I won't be friends no more. Like, you guys are the worst. Next 12 people raise your hands, you're my new apostles cuz these guys are the worst. Like your best friends just can care less because they're so consumed with themselves, they begin to argue about which of them is the greatest after you just told them you're about to die. Like, how does that discussion even go? Like, the 12 of them, like, we all have these discussions in our head, like, yeah, I'm probably the most athletic here, I'm, I'm probably the smartest, I'm probably the, you know, but you don't, have, you don't use your outside voice for that. <laughs> these people are talking about it. These are the 12 apostles sitting around, like, I mean, who kicked that off? Hey, guys, I was just thinking... I think I'm the greatest. I don't know, look at my Twitter handle, at the greatest, it says it right there. Like, I really feel like, I mean, and then they're arguing about it. You know, like, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to order two through 12, but I know who's number one. He's got two thumbs, this guy right here. (laughs) Like, they're arguing. And Peter's like, of course I'm the greatest. I walked on water, and like, bro, you sunk. Jesus had to save you, come on. And they're arguing about this. As Jesus walks up, I mean, Jesus, in this moment. So when we say Jesus is sinless, we don't just mean, well, he never robbed anybody and he never, you know, murdered anybody. Jesus was perfectly loving every second of his existence. And instead of, he never had one moment, look what happened, of wallowing in self-pity. As they just show no compassion, nothing but selfishness in the face of his news, he just turns around and just lovingly teaches them That's unbelievable to me. He never had one moment of wallowing in his own just pride or self-pity. I've never had one day without it. His entire existence was perfectly loving every moment of his life. That is unbelievable to me. So he comes up to them, and you get the sense they had the decency to maybe have the discussion apart from him. Because it says, like, he knew the reasoning in their hearts. Like, he didn't hear them having this discussion. You know, they're talking about, man, I'm the greatest. And Jesus walks up like, what are you guys talking about? Like, oh, I don't know, the Super Bowl. You know, we're all pulling for Sean McVay, you know, whatever. And then he goes, knowing their hearts, pulls a child in their midst. Now, I'm sure we miss the point of this. I mean, commentators are universally in agreement of why he used a child for his illustration. Here's why we miss it. I mean, in our culture, I think we are borderline child idolatry. Everything revolves around our kids. Every decision we make is based off of our kids. It's all about the kids. We probably have the opposite problem that they had. See, the reason he chose a child is kids had no status in this culture. They were completely insignificant. We're not considered. And so that's why he brings in a child. It probably, it, we miss some of the punch of that. We're Like, oh, Jesus loves kids. Oh, that's cool. No, he was bringing in saying, look, while you guys are all jockeying who's the biggest deal, like loving little kids, loving the least of these. I think probably a better equivalent is if Jesus is standing by one of those red lights and grabs a guy, you know, just a, a homeless beggar and brings him in and saying, look, caring for this guy, loving this guy when nobody else will, That's greatness to me, not what you guys are doing and jockeying around. So what Jesus is doing here, he is redefining greatness. And that's what I hope to do for you, but it gets tricky. I want to then move towards how do you know what track you're on? Because they're not the same. What most of us want to do is we just try to marry those tracks as much as we can we want to kind of be great by the world's standards, but you know, hopefully be great in Jesus' eyes too. They're opposites. Pick one, but also, more importantly, recognize what track you're on. All right, so let's define those together as Jesus is beginning to unpack this. First, let's start with worldly greatness. What is worldly greatness? We want to do big things for big people. We want to do impressive things so that we can impress people. I mean, that's what celebrities are. That's what Man, they're a great singer, and everybody acknowledges it. They're the greatest investor. Whatever it is, they want to do something. And that's what you, I mean, think about how many movies, right? Man, I want to make something of myself. I want to do something significant. And I want to impress people, and people will know how great I am. The huge part of this is for big people. It's for people. What is your motivation to get recognized? It is... What is your motivation to do something great? It's so you can get recognized. So people can tell you how great you are. It has been like that since the playground, since the schoolyard. You got the cool kids and the popular kids. And what is everybody trying to do? Impress the popular kids. And if you can get in with them, somehow that makes you significant because now you're part of the cool, influential crowd. Is it that different than the playground at your work? I don't think it is. We're still doing that same thing, trying to impress the heavy hitters and trying to show people how great we are. So I want to talk a little bit about this, of why this happens. Now, this is your default. All of us are trying to impress people, but why? The reformers had this great term. It was a Latin term that they would say it, in and it means bent in on self. All of us are bent in on self. They literally mean that bent in on self. We are focused here. We are so consumed with ourselves. We were in perfect relationship with God when he created us. As we walk in sin, that broke that creation, created a hole inside of us, and all of us are bent in on self, consumed with self, trying to fill that hole. So what do we do? We sense that hole. We sense that emptiness, that incompleteness. And if I can impress enough people, I'm trying to use people to fill that hole inside of me. And if enough people accept me, maybe that makes me acceptable. And so we try to fill that hole. All of us, apart from God, are narcissists. Granted, some of us are a lot better at it than others, for sure. But all of us are narcissists. We are consumed with ourselves. You ever hear where that term came from? It's actually really cool. It's actually from Greek mythology. There was a figure, and his name was Narcissus. So Narcissus, he was the most attractive man in all the land. And so everybody desired him. And Echo, this one woman, desired him. He shuts her down. To pay him back, she takes him to a pool and leans him over so he can see his reflections. And so narcissist, seeing this beautiful figure staring back at him in the pool, falls in love with his own image, becomes consumed and obsessed with his own image to the point where he can't leave that pool because he is so consumed with himself. That's where we get the term narcissism. It seems so silly, right? You know, picturing somebody just sitting there, just staring at their own image, to which I would respond, is its its it? Is it? Is it? Is it? It is amazing how much when I'm out in public watching people stare at themselves. You ever see somebody, like they don't know you're looking and they're trying to catch the right selfie, just like. You know, it's like crazy how much we stare at ourselves. And then we take 50 pictures, we're trying to figure out the best picture, we spend the next 10 minutes picking the right next picture. Next five minutes picking the right filter. The next five minutes after that picture, oh, do I go bunny ears or dog nose? I don't know. That's pretty cute. <laughs> Look, I'm not here to just slam social media. But listen, social media, smartphones have never made narcissism easier. It is more convenient than it's ever been. And I'm just telling you, to just stare at your own image like that is not healthy for your soul. And that is a sign we're pursuing kingdom greatness. Why? Why? You spend so much time picking that perfect picture. If I can just get that right picture that makes me look right to put that out in the world and enough people will literally like it, maybe I can fill, fill this hole I'm feeling. Maybe enough, that'll make me feel significant then. If enough people can like me and I'm trying to impress them with the right picture and the right filter, whatever it is. Many of you know I'm cautious with social media. And sometimes I get dogged for that. Look, it's not because I'm above it. It's because I'm afraid of it. It's because I know I'm not. The reason I avoid some of that is because I know I'm a narcissist. I can't resist it. Tell me you can resist it. When you put that out there and you're wondering, how many likes did I get? Uh, I'm not even on it. Sometimes we'll be out as a family mob like, hey, I posted that picture of us. I'm like, oh, cool. She's like, yeah, some people are commenting. I'm like, what? People are commenting on it? What? Who's commenting on it? Like, what'd they say? What'd they say? Seriously. Like, I can't, I'm just, I'm not joking. Like, we're all laughing, but you know it's true. I mean, the second I hear I'm like, oh, how many likes did it get? What? the oh, Matt liked it? That's crazy. What? Because <laughs> I'm obsessed with thinking, do these people accept me? And I'm trying to impress these people, and this whole time, I'm right here. I'm thinking about nobody but me. That's worldly greatness. Spend our lives trying to impress other people. And so there's times when I preach, if I feel like I said something wrong or offensive, I won't just think about the next day. It'll consume me for the next three days. I wonder what people thought of that. Were people offended? Oh, I'm the only one that does that, right? You, never, you ever just spend a whole day like, man, what are they thinking? I wonder if they're mad. I wonder if, it's right here. It As nothing but me looking in on self, trying to just pursue and impress people. This sermon came at the right, <laughs> right week. So it turns out like, First service, I had like a massive like alfalfa alpha, cow lick coming up <laughs> off my head. Joan got me. She's like, you need to go fix that. <laughs> Normally, i would be like, oh, my gosh, people are going to think I'm an idiot because I had it. And I'm like, whatever. Okay, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think. That's worldly greatness. Pray for your church. And I mean that. As we go into the more campaign and we're going to get bigger and there's all that temptation, look at us. Aren't we a big deal? Look how many people are coming. That's dangerous. Now, we can do that for Jesus. But pray for us. Pray for yourself. We are consumed with self and trying to fill that hole. So that's worldly greatness. What does Jesus correct it to? This is kingdom greatness. Kingdom greatness, it's a lot simpler. Loving the least of these for Jesus. Loving the least of these for Jesus. You can get so caught up, you know, even on a church staff, you know, or, you know, you maybe have your favorite preacher, your favorite singer, and who's the best singer, who's the greatest, you know, on the worship team. And we're trying to figure out, man, I wonder who the greatest is in our midst. You know who the greatest is in the church right now? According to Jesus, they're probably not in this room. They're probably in the star room right now, looking after your kids so you can worship. The greatest right now in our church is probably in the nursery, according to Jesus, Not everybody trying to make this big show, but just loving those who need love. I'll make a confession to you. Just this past week, somebody comes in off the street. Their mom died, and I know they're trying to ask the church for money. I tried to lovingly, you know, reschedule, try to push them off. You know why? I had to write a sermon on loving the least of these, and I had a 1,000 people to impress and this dude who's hurting is getting in my way. I wish I was kidding right now. Thank goodness God didn't let me get away with it and I just got the opportunity to just minister to somebody hurting as opposed to getting into all these big things that we need to be about. You know, I love Jack Butcher. He's the guy back there that has all these toys and he's making all these crazy noises and instruments. We're like, man, isn't Jack great? He's so amazing. Isn't he great? You know the greatest thing Jack Butcher does? He sits at a coffee shop with a guy trying not to drink that day is what is greatness. That's great in God's eyes. But we're so hung up on trying to be a big deal and trying to impress people and get enough people to they say, look at me, what I'm doing. Why don't you just go love somebody that's hurting? That, in Jesus' eyes, is greatness. You know, it's even silly. I love the way he corrects it. Do you notice this was subtle? They're pursuing greatness and he says, he who is great, he takes like competition out of it. It's not about winning. It's just about being great in God's eyes. It doesn't even make sense, but can you imagine, Now, just think about this for a second. When we get into heaven and they pass out the greatest award, you know, who's the greatest Christian of our time? Who do you think's gonna get it? I mean, half of us probably picked Billy Graham, right? I mean, it's gotta be Billy Graham. Look at all the great things he did. Maybe Bill Bright. You know, I mean, he started Campus Crusade. You know how many millions of people had heard the gospel because of this guy? You know who I think might get it? Henrietta Mears which all of you said, who? Exactly. None of you probably heard of her. You know who she was? She's a Sunday school teacher. You know who she taught? Billy Graham, Bill Bright. This is a Sunday school teacher just faithfully loving Jesus. And in there, in one of her classes, she's pouring into Billy Graham, she's pouring into Bill Bright, and we all want to be those guys. And Jesus is just saying, will you just love people? Get over yourself. Stop trying to be such a big deal. I had this great picture. Molly, I was at a 5K. You could just assume Molly was running it. I was watching it. She's like, look at me, ain't no runner. It was so cool. The end of this race, everybody finished up, and people were hanging around. I noticed people start lining up. I'm like, what's happening? And kind of word starts to spread. There was a man in his 80s finishing the race. Why was he running Because his wife died that year. And he wanted to just run in honor of her. Running is generous. About 50 minutes after everybody finished, you see this dude just coming down like this. Just running his race. Because he loved his wife. Did he win? Of course not. He was in last place. But Jesus saying, that is greatness. Doing the right things out of love. And you feel like that. I'm sure somebody just feel like, I'm not doing anything. My life is insignificant. I'm just home all day. Or I'm just in this, this dead-end job and you think everybody's flying by you. You're not a big deal. And Jesus saying you're missing it. A big deal isn't doing these big things. It's just loving the people that God brought your way. It's that guy you pass at the red light. I'm not saying you have to give money. We can talk about you know whether you should or you shouldn't. But you can give that guy a little dignity. What if we were the people that didn't shortstop every time so I don't gotta look at that guy? and I could just keep him invisible in my life. It's just loving everybody as you go. That's what Jesus says is true greatness. And it's tricky, isn't it? Here's the tricky part. You could be doing a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons, and it's not the same. If you're doing the right things, all these loving things, just for people to look impressive, that's not the same thing. If you're out there like, hey, hashtag loving the least of these, going, you know. <laughs> is that really doing it for Jesus? Doing the right things for the wrong people is not the same. I mean, think about it this way, how different this is. Say I write a love song. I'm singing that love song to my wife. You're like, oh, man, that's amazing. Say you found out I wrote that love song for another woman, and I'm just having to be singing it in front of my wife. <laughs> yeah, that's different. How much of that is us? We're doing all these things just to show off, just to, again, it's just more the point being to impress people. And enough people, well, I, I feel that. I feel that brokenness. I feel that emptiness. And if enough people, I can get to fill it, but they won't. Jesus says, and you don't feel like Jesus in your life. What did he say in this passage? Did you catch it? Loving the least of these receives me. You want to have Jesus in your life? Jesus is like, I'm with that person. Love them, and you bring them, you bring me into your life. Would we be those kind of people? But I want you to be clear which track you're on, because it could be tricky. The next two scenes, I think, give us great kind of litmus tests to let you know what track you're on. And I want you to know what kingdom greatness is but I want you to know what track you're on because it is different than worldly greatness. There's two questions that arise out of these two passages that follow this scene. Let me read. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Let me ask you a question. How do you handle other people's success? When other people around you that you would maybe consider a peer or an equal, they experience success in God's blessing, what does that do for you? I mean, this tells me that these guys still weren't getting it. Jesus, like, stopped them. Now, keep in mind, from last week, what just happened? The disciples were trying to cast out a demon and failed. And now these other people, these other Christians are casting out demons and succeeding. I mean, if you see God moving through somebody, generally your response shouldn't be to stop them. Why do they stop them? It's in black and white because he does not follow with us. Wait, no, we're the ones that God moves through. God doesn't move through them and they try to stop other people's success. This is tribalism. You see this? And sadly, you see this in the church all the time. If it doesn't come from our camp, our people, then we want to shut it down. If God's moving, you don't shut that down. <clears throat> Is it got to be you? You know, do you get mad when somebody else gets nominated for something you don't they become the leader, they get kind of promoted, do you celebrate that? Look. Again, I'll give you no- another picture into some of the darkness inside of me. I could be sitting watching a sermon, and God is amazingly powerfully moving through this. You know, you just feel that. You know what my first reaction is? I sink a little bit. Because I think, I wonder if everybody else knows that guy's a better preacher than me. Instead of sitting there watching God move and celebrating God use them, I don't care if I never preach again, if people get to hear your word, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be me. It's because I want to be worldly, in the way that I experience greatness. I want other people to think, um, great. How do you handle that? Other people's success. If Riverwood started to have a revival and just people were flooding there and our growths just stopped and eventually we just dwindled away, but there was revival in our city and everybody went there, would we celebrate that and say, God, I don't care. It doesn't gotta be me. How do you handle that? Do you get jealous when other people around you succeed, or do you celebrate that success? Or do you try to stop it and pick at it? And, I mean, granted, we don't normally try to stop it, right? You know, I wouldn't go that far, but I would criticize it. Oh, yeah, but his theology is a little off. You know, there's something a little wrong there, and so we just pick at those other people that God is using. I'm like, yeah, look at that guy. He doesn't even have a beard, though. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of preacher is he, right? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Stop, stop, stop. But that's a great test. Ask yourself that question. One more question. Let's look at this passage together. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now feel that pivot. Like that's right where it's happening. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Awesome. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is great. I'm saying, the Bible is just entertaining. If you just dive in there and, like, read these stories. So, I mean, understand, I mean, a whole danger of racism here. So the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They find out that they're on their way to Jerusalem. The equivalent is like you have an Airbnb and a dude's like coming from Detroit. Hey, can I use your room? Where are you going? Yeah, I'm going to Pittsburgh. Like, yeah, we're full. Keep moving, homie. Like, that's kind of what's happening here. You're going to Jerusalem? Nope. You're not our people. They shut them down. One more point I gotta make, because this is huge here, because the church gets this so wrong. Were the Samaritans wrong for rejecting Jesus? Of course. What does Jesus say? But let's just be gracious and merciful to them. What does the church do? We flip it. The church, we rail on the dirty world out there. Those dirty sinners out there. Can you believe what they put on TV? And we just rail at the world, and then we're gracious towards ourselves. Jesus does the exact opposite. Hey, let's, he rebukes them. Let's pursue holiness. Let's try to honor God and be merciful to everybody else. And it's not that judgment won't come. Judgment will come. But the way we're so kind to them is what leads them to repentance is what Roman says. So don't just rail the world and then let's be coddly with each other. Let's pursue holiness and always, always be merciful to the world. Let's kind of die back in here. So they reject them. Say, no, you can't stay here. Keep it moving. And then James and John, it's like, okay, you're full. Walk away like Jesus. He wants to light them up. Let's do this. Like their, their names, it recruited a mark as sons of thunder like, I'm pretty sure this is where they got their nickname. Like, wh- what happened? They got a room? No, they're, f- they're not taking us. You want us to call down lightning, thunder? Like, hey, sons of thunder, like, overreact much? Chill out. Like, <laughs> that's what happens. Oh, we don't have a room? Let's light them up. <laughs> Chill out. So I think the first one was probably the dumbest conversation ever. This is probably the dumbest request of all time. Let me ask you another question. When you experience opposition in your life, how do you handle it? Now here's these guys. We're Jesus. We're Jesus followers. These don't accept them, and they want nothing but vengeance. You know, they want to come back at this opposition and defeat them. Maybe it's just opposition at work. You know, you got someone bad talking to you. What do we try to do? I gotta defend my name. You know, I gotta go back, and I gotta show them. What is that all about? My name has nothing to do with Jesus' name, Jesus' fame. When you experience opposition, do you want to get back at that person? Do you want to pay them back for how they harmed you? That's a good sign you got worldly greatness on your mind because all of that is consumed with me and that man looking back at me in the pool. I had a guy, it was great, he just said, I've just stopped. It's like when people attack me, I've stopped defending my name because that's not what I'm about. I'm about Jesus and people understanding him. And so he doesn't get caught up, because he's caught up in Jesus's greatness, and doesn't worry about as much his own. Jesus never is out to impress. It's kind of cool, this week. So as we want to pursue greatness, I watched a video from Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter about the most important, most quoted verse in the King household. You know what it was? The one we just read. He who will be least among you. Watch this video.
1: I grew up in a household where serving others was not only spoken about, but it was lived out. The scripture that was shared mostly in our household is um, he who would be the greatest among you shall be the servant of you all. My mother invoked that quite often as an example of who my father was. It was always about thinking outside of yourself. We say it, you know, in the vernacular, people rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. We have to be the word. And my mother literally was the word for me um, on a day-to-day basis. And especially in the area of service and forgiveness, she was able to transcend the pain and still extend uh, a hand and a heart to those individuals. And just living with that, it gripped me.
0: You know I love? You know, obviously we all agree MLK experienced greatness. But here is his daughter. You know what the picture of greatness is for his daughter? It was her mom. Said so that's what she saw as greatness, just her mom just faithfully loving people. That's what gripped her. We're so caught up in wanting to be a big deal. I said you got to get outside yourself. Are you ready to do that? To get over yourself? I mean, repent of that. You've always been about you. You've always been about people being impressed with you. But there's, you don't get fooled by that. You need to receive Jesus. How does that happen? Loving the least of these. Getting off that crazy train of trying to impress people. Stop trying to be somebody in this world and just start loving the people that God has put in it. That is greatness to walk humbly with God, to do justice, to love mercy. Are you ready and willing to do that? To spend your days just loving the least of these. Jesus, the greatest example of greatness of all time, never once worried about impressing people, but just came and spent his life loving the least of these. Would we get outside of ourselves like that? you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, again, I just want to stop and be still, acknowledging your presence, your holiness, but so clearly in light of who you are and what you call us to be, God, acknowledging how far we fall short of that. If there ever was a time to repent, to confess, it is now. God, we are so consumed with ourselves that you call us to be outward focused, looking to others. And we are so consumed with ourselves and our pride. That would you help free us from that? With our obsession about ourselves and what people think of us and acknowledging that because of you, because of the cross, you can fill that hole. You can heal us. That we don't have to be so consumed with filling ourselves and finally, We can pick our eyes up and look at the world around us, see those hurting around us everywhere, and be a people of love in Jesus' name. Amen.